Before we begin this week's episode, I have a few things I'd like to address. First off, I want to thank all of you for listening and supporting this show. When I started this podcast six months ago, I really didn't know if anyone would listen, and really that wasn't a concern of mine. It was just a hobby that I thought would be fun. Since then, I am averaging 350 downloads per episode and have over 5,500 total downloads. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Also, I feel like I'm still trying to find my particular voice in this show, so bear with me as I try new ideas out in an effort to make the shows in 2019 even better. Also, I wanted to remind everyone that I now have stickers available to my Patreon supporters. So if you'd like to receive one, just go to www.patreon.com backslash true crime truckers podcast and make a dollar donation and I will send you one with a thank you note. Also, you will get a shout out for your support on the podcast and it goes something like this. Thank you to Dan Brenner and Molly Smith. Well, now that I've read through that long list of supporters, let's get on with the show. Accompanied by police, Gacy returned to his house on December 22nd and showed police the location in his garage where he had buried Butkovich's body. The police then drove to the spot on the I-55 bridge from which he had thrown the body of Peist and four other victims. Only four of the five victims Gacy claimed to have disposed of in this way were recovered from the Des Plaines River. Between December 22nd and 29th, 1978, 27 bodies were recovered from Gacy's property, 26 of which were found buried in his crawl space, with one additional victim, John Bukovic, being found buried beneath the concrete floor in his garage, precisely where Gacy had marked the youth's grave with a can of spray paint. Following a temporary postponement of the excavations imposed in January 1979 because of a severe winter snowfall in Chicago, Excavations of the property resumed in March, despite Gacy's insistence to the investigator that all the victims' bodies buried upon his property had been found. On March 9th, the body of a 28th victim was found buried in a pit close to the barbecue grill in the backyard of the property. 
The victim was found wrapped with several plastic bags and wore a silver ring on the fourth finger of the left hand, indicating the possibility he had been married. One week later, on March 16th, the skeletal remains of another victim were found buried beneath the joists of the dining room floor, bringing the total number of bodies exhumed at 8213 West Summerdale Avenue to 29. In April of 1979, Gacy's vacant house was demolished. Three additional bodies, which had been found in the nearby Des Plaines River between June and December 1978, were also confirmed to have been victims of Gacy. Several bodies unearthed at Gacy's property were found with plastic bags over their heads or upper torsos. In addition, several of the bodies were found with ligatures used to strangle them still knotted around their necks. In other instances, cloth gags were found lodged deep down the victims' throats, leading the investigators to conclude that 12 victims buried beneath Gacy's property died not of strangulation, but of asphyxiation. In some cases, bodies were found with foreign objects such as prescription bottles lodged in their pelvic region, the position of which indicated that the items had been thrust into the victim's anus. All the victims discovered at 8213 Somerdale were in an advanced state of decomposition, and the medical examiner chiefly relied upon dental records to facilitate the identification of their remains. Two victims were identified because of their known connection to Gacy through PDM contractors. Most identifications were facilitated with the assistance of X-ray charts. These identifications were also supported via personal artifacts being found at 8213 Somerdale. One victim, 19-year-old David Talsma, was identified via comparison of radiology records of a healed fracture of the left scapula, matching distress evident upon the 17th skeleton recovered from Gacy's crawlspace. Another youth, Timothy O'Rourke, was last heard mentioning that a contractor had offered him a job. Of Gacy's identified victims, the youngest were Samuel Dodd Stapleton and Michael Marino, both 14 years old. The oldest was Russell Nelson, who was 21 years old. Six of the victims have never been identified. On April 9, 1979, a decomposed body was discovered entangled in the exposed roots on the edge of the Des Plaines River in Grundy County. The body was identified via dental records as being that of Robert Peist. A subsequent autopsy revealed that three wads of paper-like material had been shoved down his throat while he was alive, causing him to die of suffocation. Gacy was brought to trial on February 6, 1980, and charged with 33 murders. He was tried in Cook County, Illinois, before Judge Louis Garipo. The jury was selected from Rockford because of the significant press coverage in Cook County. At the request of his defense counsel, Gacy spent over 300 hours in the year before his trial with the doctors at the Menard Correctional Center. He underwent a variety of psychological tests before a panel of psychiatrists to determine whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. Gacy had attempted to convince the doctors that he suffered from multiple personality disorder. His lawyers opted to have Gacy plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges against him, and produced several psychiatric experts who had examined Gacy in the previous years to testify to their findings. Three psychiatric experts appearing for the defense at Gacy's trial testified that they found Gacy to be a paranoid schizophrenic with a multiple personality disorder. The prosecutors presented a case that indicated Gacy 
was sane and fully in control of his actions. To support this contention, they produced several witnesses to testify to the premeditation of Gacy's actions and the efforts he went to in order to escape detection. Those doctors refuted the defense's doctor's claims of multiple personality and insanity. Two witnesses who testified were PDM employees who confessed Gacy had made them dig trenches in his crawlspace. One of the employees, David Cram, testified that in August 1977, Gacy had marked a location in the crawlspace with sticks and told him to dig a drainage trench. Immediately after Cram had completed his testimony, Michael Rossi himself testified for the state. When asked where he had dug in the crawlspace, Rossi turned to a diagram of Gacy's home on display in the courtroom. This diagram showed where the bodies were found in the crawlspace and elsewhere on the property. Rossi pointed to the locations of the remains of the unidentified victims known as Body 13. Rossi stated he had not dug any other trenches, but, at Gacy's request, had supervised other PDM employees digging trenches in the crawlspace. Both Rossi and Cram also testified that Gacy would periodically look into the crawlspace to ensure they and other employees ordered to dig the trenches in the crawlspace did not deviate from the precise locations that he had marked. Gacy had testified after his arrest that he had only dug five of the victim's graves in his crawlspace and had his employees, including Gregory Godzik, dig remaining trenches so that he would, quote, have graves available. On February 18th, Dr. Robert Stein, the Cook County Medical Examiner, appointed to supervise the exhumation of the victim's bodies from Gacy's home, testified as to how he and his colleagues had conducted the recovery of the remains. Stein testified that the excavation was conducted in a, quote, archaeological fashion, adding that all the bodies recovered were, quote, markedly decomposed, putrefied, skeletalized remains. In relation to the cause of death of each victim, upon which he had later performed an autopsy, Stein stated he had concluded that 13 victims had died of asphyxiation, 6 had died of ligature strangulation, and 1 victim of multiple stab wounds to the chest. Stein testified that the cause of death in 10 cases could not be determined, although all were ruled as homicides. Upon cross-examination, Gacy's defense team attempted to raise the possibility that all 33 murders were accidental erotic asphyxia deaths. Dr. Stein countered this assertion by stating that this claim was highly improbable. Three days after the testimony of Dr. Robert Stein, Jeffrey Rignall testified on behalf of the prosecution recounting the abuse and the torture he had endured at Gacy's hands in March of 1978. Rignall repeatedly wept as he recounted his ordeal. In response to the questioning relating to whether Gacy had appreciated the criminality of his actions, Rignall stated his belief that Gacy was unable to conform his actions to the conduct of law because of the, quote, beastly and animalistic ways he attacked me. Upon specific cross-examination relating to the torture he had endured, Brignall vomited before he was excused from further testimony. On February 29th, one of the youths Gacy had sexually assaulted in 1967, Donald Voorhees, testified to his ordeal at Gacy's hands, and that Gacy had subsequently paid another youth to beat him and spray mace in his face so he would not testify against him. The youth felt unable to testify, but did briefly attempt to do so before being asked to step down. Robert Donnelly testified the week after Voorhees, recounting his ordeal at Gacy's hands in December of 1977. 
Donnelly was visibly distressed as he recollected the abuse he had endured at Gacy's hands and came close to breaking down on several occasions. As Donnelly testified, Gacy repeatedly laughed at him, but Donnelly finished his testimony. One of Gacy's defense attorneys, Robert Mata, during Donnelly's cross-examination, attempted to discredit his testimony, but Donnelly did not waver from his testimony of what had occurred. During the fifth week of the trial, Gacy wrote a personal letter to George Garipo, requesting a mistrial on a number of bases, including that he did not approve of his lawyer's insanity plea approach, that his lawyers had not allowed him to take the witness stand, as he had desired to do, that his defense had not called enough witnesses, and that the police were lying about statements he had purportedly made to detectives after his arrest that, in any event, the statements were, quote, self-serving for use by the prosecution. Judge Garipo addressed Gacy's letter by informing him that under the law he had the choice as to whether he wished to testify, and he was free to indicate as much to the judge if he wanted to do so. On March 11th, final arguments from both prosecution and defense attorneys began, with the arguments concluding on the following day. Prosecuting attorney Terry Sullivan argued first, outlining Casey's history of abusing use, the testimony of his efforts to avoid detection, and describing Gacy's surviving victims, Voorhee and Donnelly, as, quote, living dead. Referring to Gacy as the, quote, worst of all murderers, Sullivan stated, John Gacy has accounted for more human devastation than many earthly catastrophes, but one must tremble. I tremble when thinking about just how close he came to getting away with it all. After the state's four-hour closing counsel, Sam Arante argued for the defense. Amarante argued against the testimony delivered by the doctors who had testified for the prosecution, repeatedly citing the testimony of the four psychiatrists and psychologists who had testified on behalf of the defense. Amarante also accused Sullivan of scarcely referring to the evidence presented throughout the trial in his own closing arguments and arousing hatred against his client. The defense lawyer attempted to portray Gacy as a, quote, man driven to compulsion he was unable to control. In support of these arguments, the defense counsel repeatedly referred to the testimony of the doctors who had appeared for the defense, in addition to the testimony of the defense witnesses such as Jeffrey Rignall, and a former business associate of Gacy's named Michael Reed, both of whom had testified to their belief that Gacy had been unable to control his actions. Amarante then urged the jury to put aside any prejudice that they had against his client and requested they deliver a verdict of not guilty by reason of insanity, adding that the psychology of Gacy's behavior would be of the benefit to scientific research and that the psychology of his mind should be studied. On the morning of March 12th, William Kunkel continued to argue for the prosecution. Kunkel referred to the defense's contention of insanity as a, quote, sham, arguing that the facts of the case demonstrated Gacy's ability to think logically and to control his actions. 
Kunkel also referred to the testimony of a doctor who had examined Gacy in 1968. This doctor had diagnosed Gacy as an antisocial personality, capable of committing crimes without remorse. Kunkel indicated that had the recommendations of this doctor been heeded, Gacy would have not been freed. At the close of this argument, Kunkel pulled each of the 22 photos of Gacy's identified victims off a board, displaying the images, and asked the jury not to show sympathy, but to, quote, show justice. Kunkel then asked the jury to show the same sympathy this man showed when he took these lives and put them there, before throwing the stack of photos into an opening of the trap door of Gacy's crawlspace, which had been introduced as evidence and was on display in the courtroom. After Kunkel had finished his testimony, the jury retired to consider their verdict. The jury deliberated for less than two hours and found Gacy guilty of 33 charges of murder for which he had been brought to trial. He was also found guilty of sexually assaulting and taking indecent liberties with a child, both convictions in reference to Robert Peist. The following day, both prosecution and defense made alternative pleas for the sentence that the jury should decide the prosecution requesting a death sentence for each murder committed after the Illinois statute on capital punishment came into effect in June 1977, the defense requesting life in prison. The jury deliberated for more than two hours before they returned with their decision in the sentencing phase of the trial. Gacy was sentenced to death for the 12 counts of murder upon which the prosecution had sought this penalty. An initial date of execution was set for June 2, 1980. Upon being sentenced, Gacy was transferred to the Menard Correctional Center in Chester, Illinois, where he remained incarcerated on death row for 14 years. Isolated in his prison cell, Gacy began to paint. The subjects Gacy painted varied, although many were of clowns, some of which depicted himself as Pogo. Many of his paintings have been displayed at exhibitions, Others have been sold at various auctions, with individual prices ranging between $200 and $20,000. Although Gacy was permitted to earn money from the sale of his paintings until 1985, he claimed his artwork was intended to, quote, bring joy into people's lives. On February 15, 1983, Gacy was stabbed in the arm by Henry Brisbane, a fellow death row inmate known as the I-57 Killer. At the time of the attack, Gacy had been out of his cell participating in a voluntary work program when Brisbane ran towards Gacy and stabbed him once in the upper arm with a sharpened wire. A second death row inmate injured in the attack, William Jones, received a superficial stab wound to his head. Both received treatment in the prison hospital for their wounds. After his incarceration, Gacy read numerous law books and filed voluminous motions and appeals, although he did not prevail in any. Gacy's appeals related to the issues such as the validity of the first search warrant granted to the Des Plaines police on December 13, 1978, and his objection to lawyers' insanity plea defense at his trial. Gacy also contended that although he had held, quote, some knowledge of the five murders, those of McCoy, Bukovic, Godzik, Sizik, and Peist, the other 28 murders had been committed by employees who were in possession of keys to his house, while he was away on business trips. In mid-1984, the Supreme Court of Illinois upheld Gacy's conviction and ordered that he be executed by lethal injection on November 14th. Gacy filed an appeal against this decision, which was denied by the Supreme Court of the United States. On March 4, 1985, the following year, 
Gacy filed a further post-conviction petition seeking a new trial. His then-defense lawyer, Richard Kling, argued that Gacy had been provided with an ineffective legal counsel at his 1980 trial. This post-conviction petition was dismissed on September 11, 1986. The 1985 decision that he be executed was again appealed by Gacy, although his conviction was again upheld on September 29, 1988, with the Illinois Supreme Court setting the renewed execution date of January 11, 1989. After his final appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court was denied on October 1993, the Illinois Supreme Court set his execution date for May 10, 1994. On the morning of May 9, 1994, Casey was transferred from the Menard Correctional Center to Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill to be executed. That afternoon, he was allowed a private picnic on the prison grounds with his family. For his last meal, Casey ordered a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken, a dozen fried shrimp, french fries, fresh strawberries, and a Diet Coke. That evening, he observed prayer with a Catholic priest before being executed to the Stateville Execution Chamber to receive lethal injection. Before the execution began, the chemicals used to perform the execution unexpectedly solidified, clogging the IV tube, administering the chemicals into Casey's arm and complicating the execution procedure. Blinds covering the window through which witnesses observed the execution were drawn, and the execution team replaced the clogged tubes to complete the procedure. After 10 minutes, the blinds were reopened and the execution resumed. The entire procedure took 18 minutes. Anesthesiologists blamed the problem on the inexperience of prison officials who were conducting the execution, stating that had correct execution procedures been followed, the complications would have never occurred. This error apparently led Illinois' subsequent adoption of the alternate method of lethal injection. On this subject, one of the prosecutors at Gacy's trial, William Kunkel, said, quote, He got a much easier death than any of his victims, unquote. reports, Gacy was a diagnosed psychopath who did not express any remorse for his crimes. His final statement to his lawyers before his execution was that killing him would not compensate for the loss of others, and that the state was murdering him. His final spoken words were, quote, kiss my ass. In the hours leading up to Gacy's execution, a crowd estimated to number over a thousand gathered outside the correctional center, the majority of who were vocally in favor of the execution although a number of anti-death penalty protesters were also present. Some of those in favor of the execution wore t-shirts, hearkening to Gacy's previous community service as a clown, and bearing the satirical slogans such as, No Tears for the Clown. The anti-death penalty protesters present observed a silent candlelight vigil. After Gacy's death was confirmed at 12.58 a.m. on May 10, 1994, his brain was removed. It is in the possession of Helen Morrison, 
a witness for the defense at Gacy's trial who had interviewed Gacy and other serial killers in an attempt to isolate common personality traits of violent sociopaths. His body was cremated after the execution. In the months following Gacy's execution, many of his paintings were auctioned. Some were bought so that they could be destroyed. In June 1994, a communal bonfire held in Naperville, Illinois, and attended by approximately 300 people, including the family members of nine of Gacy's victims. Only 27 of Gacy's victims were ever conclusively identified. By the time of Gacy's trial, 22 victims had been identified. In March 1980, two further bodies unearthed from Gacy's crawl space were identified via dental and radiology records, as those of Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino, both reportedly missing on October 25, 1976, the day after they had disappeared. In May 1986, the ninth victim exhumed from Gacy's crawl space was identified as Timothy Jack McCoy, Gacy's first victim. One further victim was identified in November 2011 through DNA testing as William George Bundy, a 19-year-old construction worker who was last seen by his family on his way to a party on October 26, 1976. Bundy had apparently worked for Gacy before his murder. Shortly after Gacy's arrest, his family had contacted Bundy's dentist in the hope of submitting his dental records for comparison with the unidentified bodies. However, the records had been destroyed after the dentist had retired. A second victim was identified through DNA testing in July 2017 as a 16-year-old from St. Paul, Minnesota named James Hackerson, who was last known to have contacted his family on August 5, 1976. Six victims remain unidentified, five of whom had been buried underneath Gacy's crawl space, with one additional youth buried approximately 15 feet from the barbecue pit in his backyard. Experts used the skulls of the unidentified victims to create facial reconstructions. Based upon Gacy's confession, information relative to where the victims were buried in his crawl space, relative to Gacy's identified victims, and forensic analysis, police were able to determine the most likely dates when the unidentified victims were killed. In October 2011, Cook County Sheriff Thomas Dart announced to the investigators, having obtained full DNA profiles from each of the unidentified victims, were to renew their efforts to identify all of them. At a press conference held to announce this intention, Sheriff Dart stated the investigators are actively seeking DNA samples from individuals across the United States related to any male missing between 1970 and 1979. Test results thus far conducted have confirmed the identification of two victims ruled out the possibility of numerous other missing youths as being victims of Gacy and solved four unrelated cold cases dating between 1972 and 1979. In 2012, DNA tests conducted upon the remains identified as Michael Marino revealed that the remains had been misidentified. Marino's mother had always doubted the identification of her son because clothing found upon the body was inconsistent with that of which her son had worn when she last saw him. In addition, the dental x-rays conducted upon the victim identified as Michael Marino had revealed the victim had all of his second molars, whereas a dental x-ray conducted upon Marino in March of 1976 revealed that one molar had not erupted. Nonetheless, the orthodontist who had identified Marino's remains had stated his conviction in the accuracy of his finding, adding that he had, 
quote, compared 32 teeth, probably half a dozen of them had very distinct fillings, and every one of them was consistent with Michael Marino. At the time of Gacy's arrest, he had claimed to both Des Plaine and Chicago investigators that the total number of victims he had killed could be as high as 45. However, only 33 bodies were ever found, which were linked to Gacy. Investigators did not excavate the grounds of his property until they had exposed the substratum of clay beneath the foundations. Yet only 29 bodies were found buried on his property. When asked as to whether or not there were more victims, Gacy simply stated, quote, that's for you guys to find out. On May 8, 1977, a 24-year-old named Charles Hatula was found drowned in a river near Freeport, Illinois. Hatula, an employee of PDM contractors, had been linked to the initial investigation of Gacy after Robert Pice's disappearance. This was after the employee who had informed the investigators of Gregory Godsick's disappearance informed them of Hatula's death. Moreover, this employee had stated that Hatula was known to have conflicts with Gacy. Gacy had himself informed several of his employees the youth had drowned after Hatula's body was recovered from the Precataconia River. Des Plaines authorities had contacted colleagues in Freeport during their investigation into Gacy, but were told the youth had fallen to his death from a bridge. At the time of Hatula's death, Gacy had become engaged and his fiancée had moved into his home, which leaves a possibility that Gacy had disposed of Hatula's body in the Petaconia River as opposed to burying the man in his crawlspace. However, Hatula's death has been officially ruled as accidental. Gacy stated that after he had assaulted and then released Jeffrey Rignall in March 1978, he had begun to throw his murder victims into the Des Plaines River. He confessed to having disposed of five bodies in this manner. However, only four bodies were recovered from the river and conclusively confirmed to be victims of Gacy. Given the gap of over four months between the dates of the murders of the first and second victims known to have been disposed in the river, it is possible that this unknown victim may have been killed between June and November of 1978. A retired Chicago police officer named Bill Dorsch has stated that he has reason to believe that there may be more victims buried within the grounds of the apartment building located at the 6100 block of West Miami Avenue in Chicago, a property which Gacy was known to have been a caretaker for several years prior to his 1978 arrest. In 1975, Dorsch, then a Chicago police officer, observed Gacy whom he knew on a casual basis, holding a shovel in the early hours of the morning. When confronted by Dorsch as to his actions, Gacy stated he was performing work that he was too busy to do during the day. Dorsch has also related that several other residents of the West Miami Avenue have stated that in early to mid-1970s, they had observed Gacy digging trenches in the grounds of the property. One of these residents has also stated that Gacy would later place plants in the elongated trenches he had dug. At the time these actions had been observed, Gacy had still been married to Carol Hoff. Following his first murder in January of 1972, he is not known to have buried any murder victims beneath his own home until one month after his March 1976 divorce. John Bukovich had been buried beneath his garage, and the unknown victim, known as Body 28, had been buried in his backyard. 
Gacy's wife had informed investigators that on several occasions in the years preceding their divorce, she had found several men's wallets and identification cards discarded about the property at 8213 Somerdale. When she had confronted Gacy about these items, he had angrily informed her the property was none of her business. In March 2012, Cook County Sheriff officials submitted a request to excavate the grounds of this property. However, the Cook County State's Attorney denied this request, stating a lack of probable cause as the reason the submission was denied, including the previous 1998 search. However, the Sheriff's Office had noted that in 1998, a radar survey conducted had noted 14 areas of interest within the property grounds yet only two of these 14 anomalies had ever been excavated. Of the 12 remaining anomalies which the police had not examined, in greater detail on that occasion, four were described as being, quote, staggeringly suggestive as human skeletons. Moreover, Bill Dorsch had provided police with a letter from the radar company which confirmed the 1998 search of the grounds was incomplete. A second request to excavate the grounds of the West Miami Avenue was submitted to the Cook County State's Attorney by Sheriff Tom Dart in October of 2012. This request was granted in January of 2013, and a search of the property was conducted in the spring. Both FBI sniffer dogs and ground-penetrating radar equipment were used in the second search of the West Miami Avenue. However, the search yielded no human remains. In 1984, Sam Amarante, one of Gacy's two defense attorneys at his 1980 trial, authored procedures that were incorporated by the Illinois General Assembly into Missing Child Recovery Act of 1984. Amarante has since stated that the primary inspiration for this legislation was the fact that at the time of Gacy's murders, there had been a 72-hour period which the police in Illinois had to allow to elapse before initiating a search for a missing child. The Illinois Missing Child Recovery Act of 1984 removed the 72-hour waiting period. Other states across America subsequently adopted similar procedures and sensibilities as a result of which a national network aimed at locating missing children was gradually formed. This national network has since developed into the Child Abduction Emergency, commonly known today as the Amber Alert. 
One of the first things Gacy told investigators after his arrest was that he had not acted alone in several of the murders. He questioned whether individuals he referred to as, quote, my associates had also been arrested. When questioned as to whether these individuals had participated directly or indirectly in the killings, Gacy replied, quote, directly. Gacy specifically named two employees of PDM contractors as being the individuals he had referred to as being involved in several of the murders. In the 1980s, he also informed Robert Ressler that, quote, two or three employees had assisted him in several murders. Ressler replied that he believed there were unexplained avenues to the case and stated his belief that Gacy had killed more than 33 victims. Gacy neither confirmed nor denied Ressler's suspicion. Jeffrey Rignall, who had been assaulted and tortured by Gacy in March of 1978, was adamant that at one point during his abuse and torture, a young man with brown hair kneeling before him watched his abuse. When this youth realized Rignall had regained consciousness, he was again chloroformed into unconsciousness. Rignall also informed police that as Gacy was raping and assaulting him, a light was switched on in another part of the house. Moreover, on one occasion during the surveillance of Gacy, prior to his arrest, two of the surveillance officers followed Gacy into a bar, which Gacy had driven to, to meet two of his employees. At the bar, the surveillance officers overheard a hushed conversation between Gacy and one of his employees, in which the youth had asked Gacy the question, quote, and what, buried like the other five, unquote. In interviews following his arrest and conviction, Gacy repeatedly claimed that he was not present in Chicago when 16 of the identified victims had disappeared. In one interview, he stated that at the time of his arrest, four PDM employees were also considered suspects in the disappearance of the missing individuals investigators had linked to Gacy, all of whom he had stated were in possession of keys to his house. One of these employees was a young man named Philip Paskey, who was known to have been a close associate of a man named John Norman, who operated a nationwide sex trafficking ring known as the Delta Project, which at the time operated from Chicago. At least two victims believed to have been murdered by Gacy, Kenneth Parker and Michael Marino, are known to have last been seen alive close to where Norman resided at the time of their disappearance. And Gacy is known to have been aware of Paskey's connections. This led to the theory that Gacy may have been connected to this trafficking ring. In 2012, two Chicago lawyers named Stephen Becker and Robert Stevenson publicly stated that, having reviewed archived records relating to Gacy's business travels for both PDM contractors and PE systems, it is likely that Gacy may have been assisted by one or more accomplices in a minimum of three murders. In each case, Becker and Stevenson stated the official documents attest to the fact that Gacy was in another state at the time these youths in question disappeared. In one case, that of 18-year-old Robert Gilroy, investigators found that on September 12, 1977, three days before Gilroy's disappearance, Gacy had flown to Pittsburgh and did not return to Chicago until a day after the youth had disappeared. Investigators also note that Robert Young, the traveling companion with whom victim Russell Nelson was visiting Chicago at the time of his disappearance in October of 1977, gave differing accounts of the youth's disappearance to both Nelson's family and to investigators. To Nelson's family, Young had stated Nelson failed to arrive at the bar at the prearranged time. To investigators, Young claimed that he had last seen Nelson standing among a crowd who had gathered outside a Chicago bar, 
and when his attention was diverted for a few moments, Nelson simply disappeared. Investigators contend this could not have happened without his traveling companion noticing. Young is known to have filed a missing persons report with the Chicago police before unsuccessfully requesting money from Nelson's parents to finance a search for their son. When Nelson's two brothers arrived in Chicago to search for their missing brother, Young offered both brothers a job with Gacy's construction company. Young was never summoned to testify at Gacy's trial as to the circumstances surrounding Nelson's disappearance. In a third case, travel records indicate that Gacy was scheduled at a job site in Michigan at 6 a.m. on September 26, 1977, the day following the disappearance of 19-year-old youth named John Mowry. Mowry was last seen leaving his mother's house at 10 p.m. on September 25th. His roommate was an employee of PDM Contractors who had formerly lived with Gacy and moved into Mowry's apartment less than one week before the youth's disappearance. Two witnesses have stated that this roommate had recommended to Mowry that he meet, quote, a man who is going out of town two days prior to the youth's disappearance. Criminal defense attorneys and investigators were searching the possibility that Gacy had not acted alone, and several of the murders have stated there is, quote, overwhelming evidence Gacy worked with an accomplice, unquote. As always, you can contact me at truecrimetruckerpodcast at gmail.com or join the Facebook group at True Crime Truckers Podcast. You can also visit my website at www.ageofradio.org backslash truecrimetrucker backslash. Also, if you would like to donate to the show and get yourself a True Crime Truckers Podcast sticker, go to www.patreon.com backslash true crime truckers podcast you can also find me on instagram at michael.prit81 i will return in two weeks with another case to present so until then stay safe